0: Now here's a bit of pleasure, I hope, for you on this bank holiday weekend. Uh, Tisn't every day you get the pleasure of interviewing uh, one of the greater novelists of our time. I had such a pleasure recently. And because we were off air due to that rugby match last week, and I heard about that rugby match this morning against the All Blacks. But anyway, what's history is past and done. Anyway, we weren't able to transmit it last week because we weren't on air. So this is the first opportunity we have for broadcasting this interview to you. The novelist's work include... A, an arm's length of books. But I suppose the fi- more famous ones is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, and actually my first encounter with this um, writer was a small town in Germany. Beautiful book, Donkeys, years ago. I But I'd say it's as good as ever. Anyway, now we have Agent running in the field. Endless Big names in the world of showbiz have played his characters on screen but arguably uh, the most memorable one, certainly as far as I'm concerned, was the character of George Smiley who was depicted in film by Alec Guinness. Definitively, in my view, and I know it was done again recently, but very hard to out Alec Guinness, Alec Guinness. Uh, I'm talking about a gentleman called David Cornwall, better known as John le Carre. So I'm delighted to be able to play this interview for you now when i spoke to him i began by asking him how he himself was recruited
1: as a spy i mean i was picked up very young i was studying in switzerland and i was approached and i did some absolutely trivial courier work for the local mi6 station then i went into the army and in austria when i was doing my military service i was a young officer in the intelligence corps Then there was Oxford and then I taught at Eton, got fed up with it and uh, entered first of all the security service, MI5, got fed up with that and transferred to MI6, got fed up with that and wrote the spy who came in from the (laughs) cold. But please don't imagine that because I was engaged in intelligence work, I did daring do stuff, I did nothing of that kind. How did you see the role at that stage? Well of course this was all Cold War stuff. So our loyalties were to a point defined for us, predetermined. And so it was, it was the odd situation of having an enemy, a real enemy, more or less, the communist enemy, which had quickly become the substitute for the Nazi enemy. The seamless transition from anti-Nazism to anti-communism was quite extraordinary. And so in the late 50s and early 60s, at the height of the Cold War, I was in Bonn as a junior diplomat because Bonn was the temporary capital of West Germany, and, and uh, off and on in Berlin. And I saw the wall go up, the Berlin Wall go up, and experienced some of the drama associated with that.
0: And and checkpoint Charlie and all of those things uh, that that went with it, and that went
1: with it. hmm.
0: Yeah, I suppose life has moved on to such an extent since the wall came down that people may not realise how crucial that wall
1: was to both the east and the west. That's right. Uh, As far as the East was concerned, it was an anti-fascist barrier. As far as the West was concerned, it was very nearly a declaration of war. We were absolutely on the cliff edge. Uh, I didn't see the big telegrams at that time, but I got the wind of them. And we were on the brink of World War. Um, And so we all knew that... West Berlin would be the first place to go. Uh, there it was, stuck out there, like a little tiny island in the middle of of East Germany, and the tanks would just come in and take the place. Uh, also, it was an atomic war. We suspected, I think, that the Russians would not regard even East Germany as as a safe zone. In other words, um, they would, would have been perfectly capable of involving East Germany in the nuclear holocaust.
0: And that was very real uh, in the sense that people were frightened and people were worried about it, even people who mightn't have had the level of information uh, that you might have had. It was in the air.
1: It was in the air, absolutely, in the air you breathed. And it produced crisis behaviour, People contracted reckless love affairs. Um, the level of, of crime, looting and so on, was quite impressive. But also the, the very nature of the way the Cold War was being fought was itself provided a particular kind of peril. Um, there were substantial kidnappings from west to east, And though I was never involved in them, I'm sure we repaid the compliment. Um, The East Germans tortured, uh, that Stasi, I mean, the Stasi tortured, the Russians killed. So the perils were terrible. And the scale of the Cold War, the scale of the spy war at that time, is kind of not imaginable. Uh, young men on the American side, young men and women, but mostly men, coming out of Harvard and Stanford and Yale, uh, were recruited quickly by the CIA, given crash courses, far too short, I think, and sent out to West Berlin with pack- pots of money to recruit, for as long as the wall was not there, that is to say, and uh, Berlin was an open city, theoretically, to recruit en masse Refugees coming over and trying to send them back, set up networks. And the result was great betrayals and the loss on the Western side of literally hundreds of agents. It was spying gone mad.
0: I would like to go back there before the end of the interview, but I'm going to leap forward uh, first to your new book, Agent Running in the Field, because as you describe how the climate was then, is transformed into what the climate is now with Trump in America and Brexit in Britain. And the idealisms of that time all seem to have been turned topsy-turvy.
1: Yes, I mean, when you say Trump in America and Brexit in Britain, I'm, I'm thinking... Trump in America and Johnson in Britain and the same kind of disagreeable little pack of uh, advisors and sycophants uh, that each of them has something very nasty growing up in the land of England. And we have to suppress it or change it in some way. That's my personal view. Uh, In my book agent running in the field i played with the idea that we have actually lost touch with ideology in politics it's about winning it's not about governing anymore in politics and i have one character who despite this climate of unbelief of detachment uh, does actually believe in something and acts on it with for him and others disastrous consequences uh, I can't unravel the story any more than that for you, or I'll right. spoil it. Yeah. But it's about, as you suggest, it's about uh, ideology when there is very little around. I have personally a huge attachment to Europe, to a great belief in what we achieved in Europe in the way of alliances, and I am heartbroken to see this move to detach ourselves. from the, I, I have no idea who are the supposed winners apart from hedge funders and people like that. I just don't see where the profit is. And I just pray that, that uh, the Taoiseach and and the EU generally will hang on to its principles and to its borders and not give way to this kind of bullying.
0: I'm quoting here a minority Tory cabinet of 10th raters, a pig-ignorant foreign secretary, who, of course, is now Prime Minister, who I'm supposed to be serving, with Labour no better. The sheer bloody lunacy
1: of Brexit. Yes, thank you very much, Marion. Well, I stand by that, but I haven't written a polemical book. I think I've, I've written a book, I hope an amusing, entertaining, stimulating book... Yes, where, indeed. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, ..where the characters are invested with this kind of conversation and that's the source of the conflict. Uh, it isn't that I'm on my soapbox. Uh, other people are on their soapboxes to a pretty disastrous effect.
0: You you say that you think we're ripe for fascism again. Yes, it, can you talk me through that?
1: Uh, well, I'm of an age to to recognize the signs very clearly. And I spent a lot of time in Germany, where the signs are far more clearly recognized than they are here. Uh, we have, um, we are take in politics, we are post truth. Uh, The lies that Johnson puts out are absolutely parallel with the lies of the sort that Trump is putting out. And this was a kind of dog whistle uh, that we are picking up here in Britain. It has its origins in Ayn Rand, the peculiar lady who who inflamed right-wing ideologues in America, Uh, Steve Bannon. uh, They're a group of people who are quite definitely moving towards anti-democratic, despotic government, a kind of cleaning of the house. Get rid of the institutions. I saw an enormous interview by Errol Morris with Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon kind of won because Errol Morris thought he could condemn himself out of his own mouth, which he did, but you had to know it. I wanted to ask Bannon, as I want to ask the ultras in the British government, when you've torn everything down, when you've destroyed the law courts and parliament and set about this great anarchistic movement that you've started, what are you putting in its place? Who will actually run the country? Who will, how will we elect our judges, our, our leaders? How do we start again? and there is this extraordinary movement driven by a kind of chaos theory that we break everything down so when you when you hear johnson disparaging parliament disparaging disparaging the legislature disparaging uh, really the the institutional heart of britain that's what it's about it doesn't come from nowhere it is an infectious kind of rhetoric that, of course, is personified in Trump. And to what purpose do you think? So, well, this is what I ask myself. Uh, I, I don't know any longer to what purpose we are we are Brexiting. Um, it's all about taking back control, and as far as I can make out, giving it to Trump. It, it's uh, a most extraordinary venture, which seems to me to have gained in huge rhetoric and lost in logic.
0: Well, we are sort of in the eye of the storm here in Ireland because certainly during the campaign to Brexit or not, uh, there was little mention of the Irish dimension, but the consequences for us are pretty big. Uh,
1: Astronomic. I I was in Ireland quite recently and the Taoiseach was saying that uh, Fifty thousand jobs were at risk, and probably many more. All your goods have to come across Britain. We know those things. I don't know how our government can ignore the chaos it will be visiting on Ireland.
0: Well, what's even more worrying, possibly, is the threat to peace and to give to give rise to what we thought
1: we had put behind us with the Good Friday Agreement. That is extremely alarming and i don't hear it being much addressed as you say it seems to have got forgotten in the in the conversation but it was there right from the beginning that's the oddity wise people pointed out right at the beginning of the brexit talks that ireland was the absolute keystone of it well
0: we'll see how it plays out it is impossible uh, to anticipate anything at the moment Can I go back to this notion of idealism? And I mean... I presume Steve Bannon is is playing for something. Uh, Mr. Cummings in your country uh, yes. is playing for something. And then if you go back to what you might have seen as betrayal in the past, when you had double agents and Kim Philby and all of that, there's always the possibility that people are operating out of idealism. Like... Communism was very attractive as well, in theory, in terms of equality and access for all and education for all. That's a very attractive idea as well.
1: Yes, it still is. I mean, here now in Britain, as the election looms, we will be choosing between a kind of Leninist anti-Semitism and uh, a neo-fascism, uh, in, both in embryo, I accept that, But all the preconditions are there.
0: When you were recruiting spies way back Mm -hmm. and and you you had to mind your agents, did their motivation matter? I mean, in your current book, you refer to people will do things for money and other people wouldn't take money if you forced it on them. So how did you suss the character of people and the deception that was involved, and to know where you had to deceive them and did they would have to deceive back?
1: Well, as to recruitment, all human life is there. There is no one single motive that I could point to uh, of people who worked for us. Uh, somebody might come to us because he hated his employer. Somebody else might come to us because he was in love with the Queen. Uh, somebody else again... Uh, Because he felt deeply and ideologically that the system he was serving didn't work, was wrong, had fallen into the wrong hands. Some were communists who didn't believe that their communism was being properly expressed by the system they served. Uh, Other people, yes, they just wanted money, resettlement, the promise of resettlement, uh, payment. But then there were people who loved it for the buzz the excitement of playing both ends. An odd moment when Kim Philby is being interrogated in Beirut and sizing up to make his very partial confession of having spied for the Russians for 30 years, except he didn't say 30. And he said to his friend, uh, Nick Elliott, as they were, as the English will, um, a traitor and interrogator sitting over a drink, he said what he really missed Um, was the, what he was going to miss and what he had missed in recent months was the the tension that came with serving two masters in those contradictory terms. So it's a wide range of human motives and those, I mean, really that's what keeps me writing about spying. It's the fascination. It's the possibilities of character all the time. It's, uh, I can't help... I think, as any writer does, really, I can't help looking at people and speculating about their characters, noticing their gestures and things like that. Whether I'm a spy or a writer, I don't know. Um, I think it was the element that I was projected into by chance in the formative years of my life. And if I'd gone to the Navy instead, I suppose I'd be writing about the sea. And at this moment, I'd be writing about the flagship going down.
0: You spoke about deception and obviously deception is at the heart of spying one way or another. But you also spoke about it as being demeaning and that you yourself had to engage in it and pose as a communist when you were in college.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I I think... Even then, I did it at some personal cost. And even now, I think it was right to have done it. Uh, if I hadn't done it, I would have had to get somebody else to do it or somebody else would have been recruited. Um, the, it, it, was, it was hateful at the personal level sometimes. But you have to remember that the in the history of Soviet recruitment of middle-class people, the universities were the hotbed where the recruitment took place. So my remit was to make myself attractive to visiting Russian recruiters. They came under various guises as members of the Society for Friendship with the USSR. Some just came as straight cultural attachés from the Soviet Embassy. And the expectation was that, um, the hope was, that they would pick me up, recruit me or have the impression that they had recruited me, but my loyalties would be uh, obviously to my own country and to Britain. And did they try? Uh, it was a complete flop. Um, they, uh, they came, um, one, but I think his name was Orlov. Uh, anyway, that was the name he was using. He right. was an attache from the Soviet embassy. Uh, he came and gave a talk, and afterwards he produced some vodka and we all drank together, very young students and he invited me to the Soviet embassy. And I went out of of course, I went, and was taken to some upper room, which I suspect was microphoned by them rather than us, and uh, watched the battleship Potemkin for the first time, several times. And, And I was fed a lot of drink and asked about myself. And at some point I was just dropped dead and abandoned, alas, the phone didn't ring anymore. And either they decided I wasn't attractive enough for them to be developed, or they didn't believe in me, um, or I was betrayed, which is perfectly possible. We had traitors around within the service at that time, so that could have happened too. Uh, you talk about your formative
0: years and and you've written about uh, your own upbringing through the books uh, and your father, who was, to say the least, a very unusual man, uh, whom man, you described yes. as a liar and a con man. But he was keen that you should be educated in a fashion that you would have the correct accent to be accepted in certain classes
1: that's right so the process of recruiting me as a spy took place when i was about five when i went to my first boarding school i came from since i was largely brought up at that time by my grandparents i came from a family with strong regional accents either dorset or irish my grandmother and uh, i had to learn the manners and the attitudes of of um, people from much more stable and and uh, settled backgrounds and I had to pretend with time that I had a full full-blown family my mother was absent but I I pretended she wasn't um, I invented a pony that I had in order to have a pony like everybody else so from from really quite quite early. I I had that double life, really. Um, I don't want to make too much of it. And I think any writer would uh, rejoice at those experiences later in life because really one's childhood is, um, as Graham Greene said, the credit balance of the writer. And those early strong impressions remain extraordinary. Um, I don't remember, for example, missing my mother. She disappeared when I was five. But now, with great interest, I try to examine that hole in my own nature and wonder what filled it.
0: Uh, You met her again at 21. Uh, A difficult meeting? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, well she was very bony, very tall, very bony and it's difficult to know quite, it was difficult to know how actually to greet her, What I, was I supposed to embrace her what was I supposed to do and she was um, unlike, she was pictorially unlike anything I expected which was strange and it, it was, I waited for the tears to come or some kind of Emotional revival, if you like. Yeah, but none did come. Uh, I was never moved by her. I was mystified by her, and remained quite estranged—not in an unpleasant way—but she really offered no clue to herself that I ever understood. She, uh, of course, she had fled my father because he was too erratic. His behaviour was too awful, and the money thing was dreadful, and so on. Um, Uh, Neither of them were particularly virtuous during their marriage, as far as I can make out. Um, And one night she just went. And, of course, that is very puzzling if you have children. Yes. And you imagine just packing up a suitcase and walking out on them. That is pretty startling, particularly for a mum walking out on two boys. Was she repentant? Uh, I, I think not at all. As far as, I mean, not to me, anyway um she just remains really a mystery she was a very good mum to her later family Uh, i think they, they all liked her loved her um but i think she had somehow as one can in life she had simply blocked out that whole bit of experience it was too much to deal with and when i showed up she had practical needs she was broke and so on so we dealt with that but uh no friendship no, grew up, really, no intimacy. Right. And, I mean, speaking of money
0: and dealing with things, you paid for your father's funeral,
1: but you didn't <laughs> attend. There were, th- I think, three funerals, as it were. Uh, I did definitely attend the first funeral, but I declined to speak. Um, and I, I had had, by then, a really awful kind of last... Well, off and on, over the last 40, 50 years, 40 years then, it had been a very stormy relationship and a bitter one on both sides. Right. And uh, I, I couldn't come to terms with the the bodies in his path, if you like, the damage he'd done. And I have to say... In, not in a self-pitying way, the, the stuff we'd been through together, he and I, was it was simply too grim. And so I went to the first funeral, and then there were other ceremonies. There was a memorial service, there was another ceremony in Bournemouth where he was born, or Pool, but uh, I just couldn't go through with that. Right.
0: You talk about a Stasi file on your father and that he was an arms dealer, Uh, you were looking up your own file, as I understand it, uh, from the Stasi, and you found his, which was, as you said, much more interesting.
1: Well, it was far more interesting. Mine was was boring and thin, rather unflattering, I thought. Uh, A few press cuttings and absolutely nothing else. Now, whether it had been weeded, either by the Gauk Commission, which was responsible for going through the Stasi files yeah. after the wall came down, uh, or, or indeed by the Stasi itself, I have no idea, and I don't particularly mind. But my father's file was really uh, quite extraordinary. That While I was uh, in, in Germany and attached to the intelligence community, uh, West Germany, he was in East Germany approaching the Stasi and offering his services. Um, the Stasi was sufficiently impressed after he had returned to England to send an agent, doctor somebody from Vienna, name redacted, uh, to inspect his offices in German Street and indicate in a drawing he made, which is on file, where the telex machine was and where the safe was. And so that would normally be the prelude to a special operation, a break-in. Uh, and I think it was a kind of compliment. I think they liked the idea of him. They thought they might use him on a larger scale, but first of all, they wanted to know what they'd got, and they wanted to be sure he wasn't being planted on them. That would be my guess. Right. But infuriating, like a lot of good stories, that's where it ends, before (laughs) it's time. you can always make it up, you know.
0: Um, From there, I can make up anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On the night the wall came down... You know, given yeah. your whole history, given your writing history and your imaginative history, how did that
1: play in in your mind? Um, well, I suppose I was grown up enough to feel that that was the beginning of a new story rather than the end of history. There was so much unfinished business. There were countries that fascinated me because they had been within the colonial moor of one superpower or the other, like Panama. Uh, And Kenya, for instance, had played a quite different part in the Cold War. And I, I visited them. I was fascinated by Russia itself. So just before the wall came down, I think in 88 or 87, I had visited the Soviet Union, as it still was. Yeah. And immediately the wall did come down. As soon as I could, I went back to Moscow, went back to Russia and tried to get the feel of what was going on. It was very scary then. It was really quite, that was the Wild East then. And I found the world absolutely fascinating in the wake of the Cold War. Uh, I think I also became extremely distressed that there was nothing audible or visible about the reconstruction of the world that there was no Marshall plan there was no great voice there was no rallying of the countries to say how can we fix a greater system a better system a more peaceful one well there was a certain amount of triumphalism um, and too much triumphalism a lot of exploitation yeah picking over the carcass carpetbaggers moving in uh, it wasn't a good sight. We the West did not acquit itself well.
0: And and consequently we have our problems in Ukraine and and so on. But interestingly for you, I suspect, uh, the former head of the KGB, a man called Yevgeny Primakov, became prime minister of the new Russia. And That's right. tell me about him and his relationship with you
1: via George Smiley. Well, um Primakov was a kind of super spy in this sense that he was highly intelligent. He was a natural Orientalist. By the age of 19 or 20, he was posing as the Radio Moscow correspondent all over the Middle East. He then kind of went straight. He left the KGB and went into politics and was very successful in straight politics if such a thing exists. And then after the wall came down, there was chaos in the KGB. They put in a man called Bakatin whom I met. Bakatin tried to liberalize the KGB and they nearly killed him for it. So Primakov was put in to sort out the mess and he became head of the KGB for a spell. Then he became foreign minister and it was in his role as foreign minister before he became prime minister that he came to London to meet Rifkind, who was currently our foreign minister, mm-hmm. foreign secretary. And at the end of their conversation, Rifkind seems to have said to him, is there anything we can do for you? And Primakov said, yeah, I want to meet Le Carré. And so my wife and I, Jane and I, were, as it were, rushed to the Russian embassy and that night, and we had an amazing dinner with Primakov and his Estonian wife, a doctor, Primakova, and a bunch of uh, ambassadors from the Middle East. And Primakov uh, sat a yard across the table from me, opposite me, and because he was so senior, everybody stopped talking when he spoke, and he spoke to me. Um, And he had quite decent English, and he was... Uh, he was a fan. He, he he loved my books, so we talked a bit about them. And then he asked me, David, he said, you will call me Yevgeny, I will call you David. <laughs> Tell me, do you hear, have you heard, Operation Desert Storm? So I said, yes, Yevgeny, I think I know about Desert Storm. And then he went on to say, Yevgeny, liberate me save my face. This was the voice of Saddam Hussein. He was calling me from Kuwait. He wanted me to get him out of Kuwait and save his face. So then he goes on. Uh, He went to see George Bush Senior and Bush was not helpful. Then he came to England and met, I think she was still Mrs. Thatcher. And for one hour, this woman lectures me. He was outraged. (laughs) And then. Anyway, we we had a very good talk, a long talk, into the night. And I found him extremely intelligent and interesting. And soon afterwards, yeah, he wanted all the videos and books and everything, so we arranged that, carted them down to the embassy. And then, not very long afterwards, he died. And apparently, in his memoir, he makes a nice reference to our meeting. But he was... You know, I'm I'm sometimes hugely overpromoted by people. They read my stuff. He was hooked on Smiley and Tinker Taylor and so on. They kind of mistake me for the super brain from intelligence. I'm not that person at all. This is all imaginative stuff. But uh, Primakov endowed me with the qualities of a smiley or somebody, and and spoke to me on those terms. I felt rather flattered. But I also felt as always, when you start talking to Russians of that intelligence, Russians as sympathetic as that, as thoughtful as that, as humane as that, for that he surely was. Um, you feel why is it not possible that we lo- we 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 engage with these people, speak to them sensibly, and dismantle these idiotic political walls that we right. build between each other? Yeah.
0: I'd say many a person would say, here, here to that. Uh, But just very briefly, to go back to that, there was a criticism from Sir Richard Dearlove, uh, who had been uh, chief of MI6, saying that your books were corrosive. What do you think he meant by that? That you were giving over secrets to the other side?
1: Uh, no. First of all, I gave no secrets to the other side, and for years and years all my books were read by my former employers and passed without comment. Um, but uh, Dear Love is in a class of his own, uh, for old spies. I think the tradition normally is that they keep fairly quiet. If they've been chief of the secret service and so on, they go into some corporate life, but they don't make a lot of public statements. Uh, Diyalov is, is is different in that sense, and he has taken it into his head on the strength of what I don't know, that I am somehow pernicious. I pollute the the morale of, of the secret service. Um, I personally have absolutely no experience of, of that effect of my books. Uh, I've known before Dear Love and since Dear Love, uh, the heads of MI6 uh, and other senior members. I haven't had a squeak out of them uh, in that, of that sort. So I, th- I think actually what happened was I kind of stuck in Dear Love's craw. At the time of the Iraq war, I wrote pretty savagely in the Times newspaper, calling it an asinine undertaking, virtually. And I think I was unaware that Dearlove, who was then uh, chief of MI6, was um, anyway in his capacity as chief, uh, was responsible for the the channeling of untested, uncorroborated intelligence uh, to Blair's office, Tony Blair's office which may have uh, strengthened Blair's resolve to go to war or stay at war. So I think possibly we go back far enough. Right, and, uh, right. And Dear Love is still smouldering about that. Well, who's your Irish grandmother? Are you applying for an Irish passport? Yes, I, I am indeed, Marion, and it means a lot to me for two reasons. Uh, firstly, I want to remain in the EU and an Irish passport will enable me to do that. I'm a European, I'd like the passport of a European. Uh, secondly, I have much to learn and I was completely enchanted by my journey to Ireland where I visited my grandmother's birthplace in Inchinatin, near Ross Carberry in County Cork. And that was where she grew up and that was where at the age of 16, from, from there, she went to England as a lady's maid. And a couple, that was 1911. A couple of years later, all hell broke out in that region and there was a terrible religious war and a carnage. And she escaped that. So I went and found this tiny little spot in Chinatin. And afterwards, I went to Skibbereen, where there is a heritage center. And a wonderful lady called Margaret Murphy, an archivist, First of all, rather sternly, looked at her computer for a long while, and then she turned up to me and, with a beautiful smile, and said, "Welcome home." And that was, it was rather deep, nice. Oh, it was very moving, and and uh, particularly since I, you know I had no way really of relating to my mother. Uh, I, I immediately fell in love with my grandmother and uh, explored as best I could her life in those days. What was her name? Her name was Olive Wolfe, W-O-L-F-E was her maiden name. Now, in the course of all your writing
0: and your life's experience and some of the matters we've been discussing, agent running in the field takes a slightly different tack and I don't want to give away anything about your book, but it does raise issues about... When chaos appears to be setting in uh, and we live in interesting times and all those uh, kind of clichés, what is there for people to be loyal to? I mean, people can be patriotic, people can be ideological, people can be all sorts of things. But how to establish your place
1: in the world and your loyalty now can be difficult. I think it's terribly difficult. In the case of my character, uh, he had an ideological fixation uh, on a European country, and that was what drove him. He refused to give it up. And when he was presented with a choice, he opted for the support of that country. Uh, I don't want to blow any more of the story. Of course, now, yes. The, to the rest of your question, I find, and I think many other uh, Ramonas, as they're pleased to call us, i.e. probably more than half the, the pop, half the country i think we find ourselves turning in upon family friendships and the local community i have espoused the lib dem cause i've uh, done fundraising dinners and that kind of thing i try to play that kind of part in politics but otherwise i think disaster is so close to us my my great fear is that Johnson will ride out on his white horse at the end of all this, get a deal of some kind, a fragile deal, and become Prime Minister for what, two terms, eight years? Then I think my Irish passport will become doubly useful. You you talk
0: in the book about national humiliation and and I clearly you are not a supporter of Brexit, but it's you know, the truth is that more than fifty percent ...of your fellow citizens
1: voted for it. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Marion. They were misled massively. They were uninformed. They had no idea what the process would be any more than the people who were actually selling the idea of Brexit. Nobody had on either side a clear vision of what was going on. The Remainers didn't speak well for themselves. They had no mob orator of the Johnson sort uh, to speak for reason. And we drifted into this on a chauvinistic wave of English nationalism, English rather than British. And the the core of it, if you know English society well, the core of it remains Etonian, upper class, landed probably with a massive offshore money and the intact war nostalgia. Dating from 1945 or before, because for them nothing has happened in between. Uh, for them, it's an extraordinary thing—the dreadful stuff that we've been subjected to for years and years by tabloids that belong to offshore oligarchs uh, of of the right, like like the Barclays on their island or Murdoch in America or whoever it is. They've been fed with war nostalgia. Uh, everybody i mean spitfire stories dunkirk stories as if somehow it had all been a kind of empty space from victory in 1945 to now and in a way you could argue very well that it has been a bit of an empty space the identity of the country is slowly disintegrated and the voices haven't changed in 1945 i was thanks to my father, at a British public school. And we were called together and told that the public school system, the private school system, would all go away. We were the last of a generation of privileged schoolboys, so we better enjoy ourselves. Actually, none of that stuff has changed. So we have two-tier educational system, which is terribly unfair. I mean something like 8% of the population go to private schools then look at the percentage of people in government in law in administration who have been to to privately educated.
0: And again. how do you place Labour within that landscape?
1: I I don't vote Labour. Um I have voted Labour in the past. I voted once for Blair. This time round I shall quite definitely vote Liberal Democrat because they are the only party apart from the Greens that emphatically Supports remain. Yep. How you vote Labour at the moment, I do not know, because I don't know how to put it politely, but, but uh, Corbyn has been sitting on the fence so long, he must have a very sore backside. And also, the, you know, as, as, as the, extremes, the extremists, the ultras, have taken over the Conservative Party and formed their own caucus within it, so in the Labour Party, the ultras of the left uh, are steering the movement into a kind of uh, stasis really where they're perfectly happy for brexit to take place all they want to do is recreate society.
0: okay? and just one last question. I mean, this is crystal ball stuff, but when you talk about that nostalgia for Englishness of a certain kind and you look at the fact that Scotland uh, voted to remain and Northern Ireland voted to remain and it looks like there's a growth for remain for, for Wales who actually voted to leave. But do you think this could
1: damage the structure of the UK ultimately? Absolutely, uh, I have no doubt of it. Um, I mean, the contempt in which Ireland is held by these people is quite extraordinary. And the that English nationalism I was referring to has precious little time for the Welsh or the Scots either. So I don't think that the union is very well protected by a party which once stood for exactly that, the Conservative and Unionist Party. Mm -hmm. It it seems to me that no principle is worth keeping if if it stands in the way of the ambition of Boris Johnson and his, I don't know, that flea circus of people who support him.
0: Okay, listen, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. The book is called Agent Running in the Field and it's published by Viking Penguin. Many, many thanks indeed for talking to
1: us. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much, Marion.